The Politics of Sound with Ian Carnegie. Mark, 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 M-A-R-K, Mark, 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 M-A-R-K, Mark, Mark, Mark. Welcome back. It's June and you're listening to The Politics of Sound, the podcast in which politicians and political figures get to pick their all-time favourite albums. My visitor to the record shop this month is the Conservative MP, Marc Francois, who, as chairman of the European Research Group, has been at the forefront of the fractious Brexit debate over recent years, provoking both public admiration and consternation. But what lies behind the public face? From where do his passions stem? And crucially, what part does music play within his life, both now and in his formative years? All this and much more on the politics of sound. Marc Francois, welcome to The Politics of Sound. This is the first in-person interview that's been done on this show for over a year. The others have all been virtual. Things are starting to open up, aren't they? Yes. I mean, we've all been through an extremely difficult experience. Uh, You know, unfortunately, we've lost over 125,000 of our citizens. Um, In my own constituency, we've had a number of people who've unfortunately passed away, including our own previous council leader, a wonderful guy called uh, Terry Cutmore. Um, but now finally, you know, we do look like we're emerging. The uh, The vaccination programme has gone extremely well. Uh, as I'm recording this with you this morning, I think we're at just over 37 million first jabs. So hopefully we can stay on the roadmap uh, and, you know, we can finally emerge from this on the 21st of June. Uh, and, you know, it's been a, an extremely difficult time, but, you know, we have endured. Now, you're well known as an MP, as a passionate Brexiteer, and for many memorable speeches and interventions in the House of Commons, but your musical tastes are far less well known. Uh, Would you describe yourself as a music fan? Uh, Yes, I suppose so. Uh, um, uh, What sort of place does music play in your life, do you think? Well, you know, when I was a teenager, I was growing up, you know, I was like any other, you know, kid. I went to, um, you know, I listened to music at home and then a as I got a bit older, I went to clubs and such like. So it was a formative part of my upbringing. And, you know, that was in the sort of 70s and 80s. And the stuff I really liked at the time we called, you know, uh, New Electronic, or I think sometimes it's called Synth Pop. But that was the sort of genre that, that I tended to go for. Well, we're going to hear more of that in a minute. But you have a reputation. I don't know if you think this is fair for being a, a passionate, plain-speaking, sometimes controversial politician. You, you would seem to be comfortable in the heat of political battle. Do you think that's a fair representation? Well, I suppose I've never been a shrinking violet. Um, I I passionately believed in the whole Brexit issue. Um, in simple terms, I took the view that people had voted in a referendum uh, for a course of action. Uh, if you recall, uh, right at the start of the referendum campaign, the government put round a leaflet through every house in the UK that famously said, this is your decision. The government will implement what you decide. So they promised that to the nation. Um, Perhaps the nation gave them the answer that they weren't expecting. But nevertheless, as far as I was concerned, they were on a bound. And I became more and more frustrated when it seemed to me that people were pulling all sorts of tricks and shenanigans in order to try and frustrate that decision. And 
I spoke up, you know, I called it out in modern parlance. And, you know, we fought a long running battle for about three years in parliament to honor that, uh, that decision. Did you envisage it being such a battle after that vote, after the referendum? No, I think I and a lot of fellow Eurosceptics, I mean, you know, looking back on it, we made a strategic mistake. We relaxed, you know, we, we won the referendum. You know, we sort of metaphorically, we sort of staggered over the finishing line, you know, elated but exhausted, a bit like someone who's just finished a marathon, and thought, phew, you know, crikey, we've done it. We're going to leave. We'll be all right. What we didn't really envisage was that the people who had lost, having lost fairly, would then do everything, you know, would then do everything in their power to frustrate that decision another way. So, um, yeah, we were perhaps even naive. We thought we'd won the referendum and surely the will of the people would be respected just as they'd been promised in this booklet. Uh, when the reverse turned out to be true, we had to, we had to fight for it and we had, if you like, to win twice, not once. Were there times when you thought, we are never going to get this? There were one or two long nights of the salt. Um, but in a sense, the, the thing that, that um, kept my, me and my, my friends in the European research group, the ERG, we were the sort of, you know, the hardline Brexiteers, if you want to call us that. I think the thing that sustained us was, you know, we, we had absolute moral certainty that what we were doing was right and that we were trying to honour a promise. And one of the things that kept us going was, you know, we got lots of emails from people all over the country. I got 10,000 emails on this subject. Um, some of them very complimentary, some of them far less so. Um, so people were emailing me from all over the place saying either well done or not so well done. Um, but you know, the, the, uh, the ones saying you're doing the right thing significantly outnumbered the ones coming the other way. And so, you know, that when you're getting emails from people you've never met in your life saying, keep going, son, you're doing the right thing. You're, you're speaking for me and I live in Carlisle or whatever. That sustained you. That sustained us, yes. You grew up on a, an Essex council estate and for the last 20 years, you've been the MP for the seat of Rayleigh and Wickford. Did it feel like coming home when you won that seat? Kind of in a way. I mean, I was I was born in uh, in Islington in Crouch End, ironically in what is now Jeremy Corbyn's constituency. But then you you moved to I think when you were seven, is that right? Well, it's sick. Yeah, my parent my parents moved out to Basildon onto what was then a new housing estate in 1971, um, called the Five Links Estate, uh, and the houses were lovely. Um, they were certainly roomier than where we'd been living in London. But unfortunately, the outside of the estate had sort of blocks of three and four storey flats. So from a distance, some people thought it looked like a prison. So the locals nicknamed it Alcatraz. And if you live in Basildon to this day and you say Alcatraz, everyone knows where you mean. It wasn't that bad at all, but that's the nickname, it, you know, it stuck. And, uh, you know, I went to uh, what Alistair Campbell would, would have called a bog standard comprehensive. And, um, uh, when I turned up in 1976, I specifically remember because we were told in assembly, you know, there we all were in our brand new school uniforms. There are 226 of you joining St. Nicholas Comprehensive School this morning. Um, of those 226, how many do you think got to university? Well, I, I think you have gone on the record about saying this, and I think it was less than 1% yeah, were going to go on to university. And I think yeah. you also said that the school 
metaphorically broke those kids' legs. I mean, why were your legs not metaphorically broken? Well, there were two of us out of 226, so 1%. Myself and a guy called Barry Lemon, who was a sort of maths genius, and he was the father of the director of studies. Look, there there were some teachers at that school who were passionate about the kids' education. But what was it about you? What was it within you that made you rise, made you get to university? Because this was a huge achievement. Incredibly supportive parents. You know, my my mum and dad, Reginald and and Anna Francois, were incredibly supportive and nurturing. My father was a shift worker. He worked at Shell Centre in London, which was, you know, they're an Anglo-Dutch company, that was their UK headquarters. And, uh, you know, he worked in the kind of engineering and maintenance department. You know, he was a shift worker. And he did a lot of overtime to buy an Encyclopedia Britannica. This is a very well-known story, I think. Yeah, well, and that helped me with, with my studies, you know. So all my sort of A-level essays, you know, were, were, you know, when you're footnoting an essay and, you know, proving your facts or your references, you know, again and again, there were references to, you know, volume X of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And obviously there was no online in those days. It wasn't like now where you could just Google it all. You needed a book. And, you know, Dad worked hard for well over a year in order to afford that encyclopedia. So, you know, why did I get there? Because I had incredibly supportive parents who didn't force me to study, but, but encouraged me. It was, it was all positive. You know, I wasn't sort of sweated to do it, but they very much wanted me to get on. And they did everything they could in order to, to facilitate that. And I'll, I'll forever be grateful to them. You went on to be Minister for the Armed Forces. How much of your father's involvement in D-Day, I think he was involved on a minesweeper, is that correct? Yeah, you've done your homework. Yes, he was. He was, he was there age 19 on a minesweeper called HMS Bresse. So they obviously went in very early in the morning in order to sweep the paths to the invasion beaches so that the landing craft could land safely, or at least safe from mines anyway. Did yeah. he speak about that time? Because that generation very often didn't speak about what they had gone through. You're correct. Um, one of the things I learned when I became an MOD minister is a lot of veterans, they'll talk about fun times, they'll talk about scrapes they got into and adventures they had along the way, but they don't like to talk about combat because it's often too painful because, you know, if you've lost one of your best friends, you know, who's been killed standing next to you, it's an incredibly painful thing to recall. So a lot of veterans will kind of metaphorically put that in a box and turn the key. And Dad was the same. And one night, when I was 13 years of age, um, he came home, ironically, from a naval reunion. And he, Now, normally, I would have been long to bed, but God was kind, and for some reason, I stayed up that night. And, you know, with a couple of drinks inside him, he just started to talk about it. You know, he just started to talk about um, what happened that day. So there I was as a 13-year-old boy, you know, sitting literally at my father's knee, hearing about you know, D-Day firsthand from someone who'd been there and I was spellbound. And, you know, Dad didn't, you know, glorify it in any way. Quite the opposite. He said how bloody awful it was. Um, But nevertheless, you know, they they had a mission. They had to rid Europe of Nazi Germany. And, you know, he played a part in it. I I will forever be proud of my father. Unfortunately, he died the following year when I was 14. So that was the one night, that was the one time that we really spoke about it. You subsequently went on to Bristol University. We've talked about you getting there. I mean, this would have been a time of of strong political opposition to the Conservatives. Obviously, Mrs Thatcher was in her pomp, but equally, it was the time of CND. It was the time of Red Wedge. You probably remember them. Mm -hmm. Mass unemployment. 
Was this where you discovered and honed your your passion for political debate, maybe in student union politics, or, or was it during your years on Basildon well, District Council? I, 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 well, uh, that came uh, that came later. Um, well, no, at Bristol, I, I joined the Conservative Party at Bristol when I was eighteen years of age, and I ended up as the chairman of the University Conservatives. So that was Bristol University Conservative Association, or, or BUCA. And uh, my mentor, if you like, was uh, was the head of, I read history, was the professor of history, a man called John Vincent, who used to have a fairly punchy column in the sun. And uh, on occasions, the socialist workers would attempt to burst into his lectures. And I remember on one occasion, myself and a, a bunch of students kind of playing rugby with them in the in the doorway as they were trying to get in to disrupt one it of the lectures. It got physical. Well... Ish. They wanted to get in and stop him speaking, and we didn't want to let them. So, um, uh, so he was a controversial figure, and the left hated him because he, you know, I suppose a bit like I was to go on to do. He spoke his mind, but he he was far more articulate than I ever was. No, no, Bristol was quite a political place, and one of the friends I made there was a guy called Lembert Opic. So Lembert became president of the students' union. Uh, rather cleverly, he uh, uh, he formed... You see, normally the political parties put up candidates for this but stuff. But he would be of a different political persuasion to well, you. Well, well Lembert eventually ended up as a Lib Dem MP, as everyone knows. But at that time, he formed something called... Poly, uh, what is it? Um, uh, Philosophers in Social Sciences, or PISSOC for short, if you forget <laughs> French. And that was his vehicle for, for becoming president of the Student Union. So it ended up with... When we had these big debates in the Anson Room, which was the kind of debating chamber of the student union, Lembit was in the chair as president of the union, and I was there in charge of the Tories, having a crack at, at the Labour Club and the Socialist Workers. So, yeah, I, I, that was fairly lively. And then when I got on to Basildon Council, which was a very lively council chamber, Basildon was once described by a friend of mine as the only local authority in the United Kingdom, where at council meetings, councillors would actively heckle the public gallery. <laughs> and uh, it was a pretty, you know, vibrant place to learn your Baptism trade. Baptism of fire. Yeah. So by then we're in the we're in the uh, early to mid nineties, and it was very political. Uh, they were a kind of very left wing Labour group. We were mainly Thatcherite Tories. But if this was the early nineties, the the Conservative government was running out of steam. Then John Major. Yeah. There was a lot of criticism elements of or criticism about possible sleaze, all that sort of stuff. Well, I, I, I got quite, uh, quite involved. So when I came back from university, I, I joined the local party. And then in the 1992 general election, when uh, David Amos famously held Basildon, this was this iconic victory. Well, I was his ground war commander. I ran that canvas. I ran all the door knocking for him for two years. And the actual election agent, who was an overall charge, was a wonderful woman called Barbara Allen. And you know, we had a pretty good team and we worked for two years and we won the general election and we then went on to win the local elections the following month when we swept the board. So, you know, the Labour Party were pretty upset with us and with me in particular. Your constituency voted 67 to 33% in favour of Brexit. Now, hypothetically, if they'd voted with the same figures to remain... Do you think you've been able to continue as their MP? Yes, because there, yes, there are there are a number of MPs uh, who voted one way in the referendum, although their constituents voted another. This was the point. You know, it was a free and democratic choice. So, for instance, I think the biggest no vote of the lot. This is off the top of my head. 
almost three to one was uh, in Boston, in Lincolnshire. And uh, the, the member of parliament there, Matt Warman, who's a lovely guy, I think voted Remain. And he made some quip uh, about, you know, I, I may have to look at this again. So no, I, I don't think that was, an, that was an unbridgeable gap. But I think what was important was that all members of parliament, whether they voted leave or remain, respected the decision of the people. And where we got into trouble was a lot of MPs were paying lip service to respecting the referendum and then doing everything they possibly could behind the scenes to scupper it. I was on a holiday two years ago, just after Theresa May had left government. Mm. And um, I came across Theresa and Philip May walking towards me in Italy. Oh. And uh, they were about Italy? This was on Lake Como. Oh, right, because my mother was Italian, so, yeah. And um, I just wonder, at that time, she looked quite bruised by the whole encounter. Had she seen you coming towards her, what sort of conversation would that have been? Uh, I don't know. Uh, if I'm in Italy at some point, visiting some of my mother's relatives, and I'd see Theresa May coming the other way, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. But I, I'm, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. You know, we... We spent months trying to persuade Theresa May not to go through with her withdrawal agreement. You know, we, we spent months and months with lots of private meetings in Number 10, with her or with her key officials, trying to persuade them to change course because when she originally made what was called the Lancaster House speech in 2017... At Chequers, wasn't it? That well, this well, was well, first... well, this is all before Chequers. Yeah. At Lancaster House... Because remember, she famously said Brexit means Brexit. But then everybody said, well, what does that mean? So then at Lancaster House in 2017, she laid out a version of Brexit, which was, you know, very much a, a sort of, you know, uh, Eurosceptic version. And we all thought this was marvellous. The problem came at Chequers when she performed effectively a complete vault fast. And we spent months trying to persuade her, as it were, to go back to her original position. And it's only when it became apparent that she was never going to do that and they published the withdrawal agreement in, on the 14th of November 2018, off the top of my head, um, that you know, we realised that uh, they were never going to change their mind and we could either roll over or fight it. So we decided to fight. And the, the reason we fought it is when you go through the 585 pages of the withdrawal agreement, what it means is that actually we never left the European Union at all. You've also spoken of, of the changes in being an MP over the years. You've said that 20 years ago you'd have recommended it without hesitation, but now that you would recommend that people go into it with their eyes wide open. Yes. What did I, you mean by that? Well, I think the, the, the job has changed in that time. So when I was elected in 2001, you had email, but really it was still you know, nascent. Uh, there was no social media. And all, you know, all MPs get internet trolled all the time. Our female colleagues have it far worse. I mean, some of the stuff is, is just utterly misogynistic nonsense. Um, you know, so you, there's an emotional cost to doing this job that probably wasn't there 20 years ago. Where is this aggression come from? Because I hear this again and again in these interviews. Um, it, it's difficult to say. I mean, we... Interestingly, we had a seminar at work a couple of years ago about who are internet trolls. And we had psychologists and psychiatrists and social workers and police officers. And it was very well attended. A lot of MPs turned up. The bottom line was, obviously it varies, uh, 
but your classic internet troll is a young male living at home still with their parents in their 20s who has difficulty forming human relationships with other people. So they get their kicks by uh, staying at home upstairs in their bedroom and viciously putting down other people online. That is your archetypal internet troll. And these are very sad people. And this is something which you have yourself had experience. Well, I think all, all members of Parliament have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could you could invent a cure for cancer and you'd still get slagged off on Facebook. But that doesn't mean you don't become a member of Parliament, but that's the sort of thing I meant when I said to someone who said they wanted to do it, go into it with your eyes open. Well, we're going to open our eyes to something very much more positive now because it's time for you to go into the politics of sound record shop and pick your all-time favourite albums. Are you ready to go in? I think I am. So, Mark, how was your visit to the politics of sound record shop? Was it nice to go into a record and have a good browse? Well, you have you have a remarkably comprehensive collection. Well, thank you very much. Mark, what's your first choice from... The record shop. It's Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, and it's uh, a sort of compilation of their greatest hits, which came out, I think, in 1988. It did on the Virgin label. It's called The Best Of. Yeah, but and I but I listened to a number of their singles, obviously, uh, uh, in the 80s, and uh, I just I just really like their sound. So I think the first one they did was uh, uh, Electricity. <laughs> The two members, they come from the Wirral in, in Merseyside, yes. Andy McCluskey and Paul Humphreys, and they met at school in this extraordinary story of these two guys who then were in local bands mm. and then got signed together and have been together for 40-odd years. Yeah. They've spent their whole lives making, making music. Have you ever seen them live? Uh, unfortunately not, no. Are you a gig-goer? I've been to a few. I went to, I saw Ultravox live in Bristol when I was at uni there. That must have been around the time of what, Vienna? Yep. Raging so it, Eden, it, maybe? It would have been, yeah, it would have been, that, so that would have been in the mid 80s in Bristol. That was great. And uh, more recently, I went to see the Human League at the Cliffs Pavilion. So that was a few years ago. Don't tell the chief whip, but I bunked off a three-line whip that night to go and do it. <laughs> yeah, but needs must. Absolutely. Well, it, it's a funny story because of an old friend of mine called Ian Harlow, uh, who's now a retired police officer, he got a couple of tickets to a friend at short notice. And uh, so we were in the Cliffs Pavilion, in the bar, having a drink, waiting for the Human League to, uh, to come on. And we hadn't really bothered to look at who the support band was. And so we're chatting about it. Was it it the Chief Whips band? Well, no, 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 no. But someone said, you know, should we go go and see the support band? And I think Ian said, oh, I don't even know who they are. And someone standing next to us overheard us and said, oh, it's mid-jure, mate. Whereupon we we, we downed our pints and went straight in, just as he was playing uh, All Stood Still. And about 10 minutes later, he got to Vienna. And of course, the place just went nuts. And then on came the Human League. And they finished up with um, uh, Don't You Want Me? And they encored with Electric Dreams. And one of the things, you know, I realised, you know, as, as we looked around, kind of everyone was a similar age to us. Yeah, you had all these people in their sort of early 50s, all thinking they were 18 again. It was a great night. 
And, and uh, luckily we won the vote anyway. I mean, what's the fascination with synth pop or electronic music like that? I'm not a, you know, I was never an NME reader. I, I, I couldn't uh, call myself a pop aficionado. I just like the sound. You know, I, I just like the kind of the rhythm of it all. I like the way that they, you know, they were using new instruments. It just sort of, it caught my ear. Well, they were very influenced, of course, by the German Düsseldorf band Kraftwerk. Yes. Did you like them as well? Yes, I'd heard some of their stuff. We are the robots. We are the robots. I came across, you know, o OMD, and I think they in turn influenced a number of other bands. Um, that in some ways that they, they led a new genre within British pop. And then to some extent, Ultravox, and I think another band we're going to go on to talk about in a minute, took at least some of their inspiration from them. And of course, their, their greatest hit argument was, oh, sorry, was, uh, was Enola Gay. Have you ever met any of your musical heroes? Well, I, 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 met, uh, um, uh, I met Alf. Alison Moyer. Alison Moyer at um, an awards ceremony at South Essex College uh, many years later. Oh, wow. And she was being given, I think, from memory, an honorary degree. And I was there as one of the local MPs. Yes. And she gave this hilariously funny speech. And, um, you know, she talked about how, uh, uh, you know, when she was the age of these students, you know, she tried to study, but really she'd, um, uh, she spent most of her time, you know, you know in bands playing music. Uh, and then you, that, uh, and she went down that one. Now, of course, she went to my old school. Which, which school was? Which was St Nicholas Comprehensive. So she was a few years above me, so I never really knew her at school. But, you know, she, you know, she went to that school and so did some of the members of what became Depeche Mode. Well, I remember forming a band at that time. I was in loads of bands. Were you ever in a band? No. Were you ever asked to be in a band? No. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, we, you know, I think God gives us all different talents. Mine were never musical. Uh, well, there's plenty <laughs> of people who've done well without much musical talent, we could argue. But, yeah. but I remember getting a group together at that time when I was probably about the same age as you to play a version of Enola Gay in a concert. And right. it was so bad that people didn't even know we'd played it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyway, I'm going to hopefully rectify that now. As you probably know on this podcast, we have uh, our own Politics of Sound house band. We're going to do a version of Enola Gay, and I hope it's an improvement on the one 40 years ago. Fantastic. Good luck.
Relics of Sound band there with a hopefully recognisable version of orchestral manoeuvres in the darks Enola Gay. So, Mark, what's your last choice from the Politics of Sound record shop? That is uh, Depeche Mode's debut album, which was Speak and Spell. Well, this had to be picked. You are absolutely basled and through and through, and so were they. Did you know them? No, I can't say I did. They were about, some of them went to St. Nicholas. Um, so, and they were about five years above me, you know, so, so obviously you tended to mix with the kids in your own year. So I knew of them, and I think one of their first ever gig was actually at the school. There were two schools, there were about six or seven comprehensors in Basel. And I lived in Langdon, uh, and uh, at, the, at the western end of the town, and there were two comprehensors there who were fierce rivals in all things. St. Nicholas and Langdon. And some years later, they merged the two schools into one. And such was the rivalry, not just among the kids, but the staff. They had to come up with a neutral name. So they then called the combined school James Hornsby School after the last teacher at St. Nicholas Church, which is the church on the hill that overlooks the school site. So they, um, uh, Landon, uh, eventually was demolished and turned into a housing estate. So we kind of like to think we won in the end. They played their first gig as Depeche Mode there in May 1980. Yeah. And quite extraordinary, within a year or just over a year, they were on top of the pops with their first single, which was New Life. Yeah. I mean, you know, as, you know we, we look, St. Nicholas School was not a hotbed of academia, right? We didn't get many people into Oxbridge, but we got them on top of the pops. You know, so Depeche Mode made it, you know, Alison Moyer made it. So, you know, one of the things the school has a strong heritage of uh, is, is of musical success, of, of which I was absolutely not a part in any way. Um, but, you know, that, that school, for whatever reason, nurtured musical talent. I love that story of them on their first appearance on Top of the Pops. They actually carried their own gear there on the train. Yeah, they didn't turn up in a kind of battered white van in that classic sort of cliche. No, they, they, I think they would, they would have gone on the train on a rather, what used to be called the Misery Line, probably into Fenchurch Street, and then, you know, and then got, gone from there, maybe even on the tube. For someone who's never heard Speak and Spell, it's an iconic album. How would, how would you describe it? Well, again, it, 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 was, it was just quite exciting. Uh, um, uh, it, you know, it, it was different from some of the stuff that you'd, you know, that, that you'd heard before. So I, I got that one on vinyl, I think, and the IMD one I got on tape. And you know, because you know, when I when I went off to uni, I had a little tape deck, and it, you know, just it just meant you know, didn't really have room for a big record player in a, in a small student bedsit. But you know, I just had a little tape collection that you kind of sit there and listen to in the evenings. Uh, on a Sunday night, you know, I would. When the charts came out, of course, that was you know, a big thing, you know, wasn't it? You know, so I, I would sit in my, you know, sort of, you know, uh, bedsit room uh, that I shared, you know, with a, well, a, a bunch of us became friends at, at uni, and then we all ended up in digs together. So I, I'd be in my little room in these digs, and uh, you know, on a Sunday evening, working away, you know, waiting to see, you know, who, who was going to top the charts. You know, I'd be sitting there working on an essay, listening to the countdown. This album their first album, it's very positive, it's upbeat. And there's a sort of clear distinction between this and their later work, which is much darker. Do you love that music also? Did you stay with the band during those sort of later years? Um, 
I think mainly I was sort of a fan. I was a fan early on. So, uh, you know, I, I left, uh, I left St. Nicholas in 1983. I went off to Bristol for three years. I then did one year at King's and did a master's in an MA in rural studies under a chap called Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman. He's quite well known. So, um, you know, so by the sort of, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, I was going on to, I was sort of going on to other things. Um, but I definitely remember Depeche Mode as, you know, being part of my, part of my youth. I know you've said you, you were never in a band, but hypothetically, we can grant you a wish here. If you could have been a member of any of those electronic bands of the 80s, who would you have joined? Crikey. Um, I think I would have loved to have been in Ultravox on stage somewhere playing Vienna. Any, inst any instrument you like. But um, I think, you know, to have been, you know, I remember watching them live in Bristol. It would have been something like, I don't know, 1984 or 85. And, you know, I remember being in the audience, you know, watching those guys up on stage, you know, thinking, God, wouldn't it be fun to be up there doing that? about as likely ever to do that as I am to be an astronaut. But, um, so there's, there's my answer. It'd be on the stage with Midjur doing Vienna. Well, I'm going to join the Politics of Sound Band now and we're going to do one of those tracks from the Speak and Spell album and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. 
The Politics of Sound with Ian Carnegie. If you enjoy the Politics of Sound podcast, then why not listen to the Debated podcast, featuring fascinating interviews with guests from across the political spectrum. In this coming month, we'll be talking to local election winners. People from different parties who have won local council elections in the most recent set of elections. And we'll be asking them, why did they win in their areas? What factors determined their winning? And what their wins say about the current political climate in the UK. I hope you enjoy listening to the debated podcast. You can check us out on Spotify, iTunes and wherever else you get your podcasts. I noticed that you haven't picked any political albums from the record shop. Do you think that politics and music can go together or really should they go together? Well, a number of bands have always been political. Um, You know, a a lot of bands appeal in particular to young people. Often young people are very passionate about their politics. You you know, you saw that when you were when you were at uh, when you were at university. So I, I don't think you need to have a delineation between politics and music. I'd just, I'd just like to see a few centre-right bands, not just lots of left-wing ones. <laughs> and on a more personal question, when politics is over for you, what comes next? Um, uh, I've got a wonderful partner. Uh, she's great. In fact, I'm going from this interview to have... Happy to, birthday. To, yeah, it's her birthday today, to have lunch with her. And... Um, uh, I think I'd just like to spend the. I think I'd just like to spend a lot of time with her, really, and you know, maybe even maybe even write a book. Perhaps I'll write a book about Brexit. Well, you're writing one at the moment called yeah. "You Couldn't Make It Up." Is that right? Oh, uh, that was the original title, um, but then I thought that wasn't snappy enough, so I've retitled it "Spartan Victory," and the reason for that is the 28 of us who held out to the end against uh, the withdrawal agreement. Uh, we were nicknamed by the press the Spartans, you know, the the, the 300 Thermopylae who, sur- you know, famously refused to surrender. And uh, the media gave us the same, you know, there are worse nicknames to have in life. So uh, it's called Spartan Victory and it'll be coming out in the autumn. Mark Francois, thanks so much for being my guest on The Politics of Sound. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. The Politics of Sound. You've been listening to The Politics of Sound, where my guest this month was 80s synth-pop-loving Marc Francois. My thanks to him and also to Rory Bowden for all of his assistance over the past few weeks. Joining me in the band this month was the guitarist Jeff Sprackling and the cellist Chris Hedges, and we'll be back on the 1st of July when my guest will be the former Conservative MP and now writer and media personality Edwina Curry. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and, of course, click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great month and we'll see you next time.